Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 530, A Critical Crossroads. Was Matthew repeating himself by telling the same story two chapters in a row? Are we more religious than we realize? And how human was Jesus? We're going to explore these questions and more as we tackle Matthew chapter 15. Well, hello, everyone. We're carrying on with our lengthy journey through the Gospel of Matthew because there is so much richness there. We're actually on episode 30 today, and we're going to look at chapter 15. We are witnessing the the rising conflict uh, that Jesus is having with the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. And, And as Matthew's gospel continues to move forward, and in fact, it's going to really begin to accelerate after chapter 16, the, the controversies become sharper, and, and if you look carefully, they become more theological. But instead of withdrawing, which we've seen Jesus do before, now he addresses the religious leaders directly. He confronts them with overarching truths, big truths, in response to their criticism of both him and his disciples. Jesus moves from, from speaking first He speaks to them, and then he speaks to the crowds, then he speaks to the disciples about both the error of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, but also the the danger that they pose. Matthew then opens up a, a second important theme built around Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman, and then finally we are presented with a scene of him feeding a large crowd for the second time, but it's a different kind of crowd in this chapter. So let's begin verse 1. And Jesus in this whole section of 1 to 20 is, is addressing tradition versus scripture, and really beneath that, the more fundamental issue is the inner life. Verse 1, then the Pharisees and scribes uh, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that whoever tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is given to God, then that person need not honor the father. So for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. Matthew has raised the issue of ritual purity directly and indirectly already in various miracle stories. Remember, I've told you this narrative, nothing is wasted, and he's very particular about what he presents to us. We, we, see, um, we see in these various miracles that, that the religious leaders saw a breach of the purity laws. But Jesus had touched a leper. 
Uh, he touched an unclean woman with an issue of blood. He touched a, a dead body, Jairus' daughter. He'd been involved with sinners and tax collectors, the very ones that the religious people said, you got to stay away from them. And so the issue of washing hands before eating seems very trivial to us. But actually, it goes to the heart of Jesus' ministry, which is a ministry that's inclusive, not exclusive like the Pharisees. A ministry of rescue, not judgment. And also at issue here is the weight of tradition. The Pharisees viewed tradition as virtually equal to Scripture. And, and it's, it's hard for us in the modern era to, to understand, and certainly it would be impossible to overstate, the issue of ritual purity to the Pharisees. The externals were so important. They said that in order for any person to participate in life and worship with the people of God, that one must avoid defilement at all costs. The purity of God's people separated them from other people groups. And of course, as we, as we enter into this new covenant, their teaching automatically created a barrier between the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, you know, the, the Jerusalem church, Acts 2 through Acts 8, they, they couldn't, they were Christians, of course, but they were Jewish Christians, and they could not imagine anything different but the purity and the separation. Remember Peter in Acts 10, when he has this vision up on the roof, and, and God says, Peter, I want you to eat, which is, he says, never, Lord, I won't defile myself. That's a picture of just how entrenched their thinking was. They probably had never, ever considered anything else. Well, let's go through a few of the verses here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. This is the first time that Jesus is confronted by religious leaders coming all the way from Jerusalem. They've come to investigate Jesus and his message for themselves. While the crowds came in response to the miracles and the teaching, and they were so excited, the Pharisees only came to fault find, to criticize. St. Christostom, early church father, said this, when? When he'd worked thousands of signs? When he had healed the sick with the touch of his tassel? It was for this reason that the evangelist indicated the time, so that he might show that their unspeakable wickedness was second to none. They were afraid that someone might take away their power. They wanted others to be more afraid of them. They themselves had become the lawgivers. Isn't that interesting? Verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. Interesting. You see this several times through the Gospels, that their attack begins on Jesus' followers. Well, again, Christostom has something to say about this regarding the, the disciples not washing their hands. They had washed them once in baptism with their whole body in accordance with our Lord's words to Peter. When he said, he who has bathed needs only to wash, and he is clean all over as you are clean. 
So they're saying, why do you break the tradition of the elders? Jesus responds, verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus' pronouncement is, is the first step toward a, a new Christian re-evaluation of Old Testament laws. And so he brings up a particular issue. It's developed in Mark 7, uh, a term called Corban, which says that, that the, the money that I would have supported my parents with, I am dedicating it to God. And in fact, um, <laughs> when the parents died, very typically they would take it back. It's wicked. So he's saying, you're breaking the commandment of God with your very traditions. This is the beginning of a reevaluation of the whole Old Testament law. By the way, did you notice that that <laughs> the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, say, "You say," uh, and and you know, Jesus says to them, "You say," but he also says, "But God said." There's this juxtaposition of authority, real authority. Now, mind you, I want you to see this in verse 7. It's the very first time, even with this rising conflict we've talked about over the past several weeks, this is the first time he calls them hypocrites. He's beginning to be more obvious about drawing lines. Jesus doesn't rebuke people for sin, but he does go after those who use religion to control people. And then he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have replaced true religion of the heart with an outward religion of form. Folks, this is always a great danger. Don't, don't read this and push that off to the Pharisees. We see them as the, the cowboys with the black hats. No, this is so dangerous for all of us. There is a great tendency because we, we so easily find security, uh, a sense of self-worth in the externals of our religion. And Jesus is saying here again, as he touches in depth in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not the outside, it's the inside. And so carrying on on that very issue of things that defile, defile, verse 10 and following, then Jesus called the crowd to him and said to them, listen and understand. By the way, that term is very emphatic. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, 
And this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Well, let's unpack a little bit of this. Verse 10, he now calls the crowd to him. He's just addressed the Pharisees and and called them hypocrites. He calls the crowd together and he says, listen and understand. As I said, the language is very emphatic. It's like the Jews' Shema, which is, you know, from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. It's that same kind of emphasis. Again, it's his authority. We saw a lot of this when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. But he's saying, listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Here's something I want us to consider. Our words not only have the potential to defile us, but to defile the person to whom our words are directed, whether straight to them or the classic triangulation, gossip, and and just speaking to another person about the one we're criticizing. And and the writer to Hebrews talks directly about this in in Hebrews 12, 15, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Verse 12 to 14, then the disciples approached and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let him alone. They are blind guides of the blind. But Peter said, explain this parable to us. This must have been just shocking to the disciples. They had always, like all Jews, held the Pharisees in high regard. They were like the elite of society. And so now Jesus says that they were shocked. And and so I think that their heads were spinning, and Peter is basically, the reason he said, explain this parable to us, it's not that the parable was difficult, it was that it was was mind-bending. His whole paradigm was shifting, and he wanted to make sure that he understood, that he heard Jesus correctly, and he understood what he was saying. Jesus was saying that the Pharisees were not truly part of God's planting. Isn't that amazing? And then he says this. It's really important, folks. He doesn't say, so I want you to oppose them. I want you to protest against them. No, he says, let them alone. Folks, we've touched on this before, but especially in this day and age of such turmoil and division, I watched a show yesterday again about just the the negative impacts of social media. There can be positives, but the negative is huge. In light of all that, let them alone are three words we need to remember. Because it's futile. He's saying to them, you're not going to change their minds. And and when we try to change people's minds, it's like it escalates and escalates. We've talked about this before. Jesus says, don't do it. Keep loving them and walk away. 17 to 20. 
Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. This is interesting. You can actually see the parallel in his list with uh, the Decalogue, which, with the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is saying, food doesn't defile us. In, in Mark's telling, in Mark 7, he adds this phrase, by this he declared all food clean. It's implied in Matthew. He says it flat out in Mark. You know, the earth... And all the food that it provides is declared good. God said it is good. We need to embrace not original sin, which, by the way, we got from St. Augustine, from a mistranslation. He did not actually speak Greek, so he read uh, a Latin translation of uh, Romans 5.12, and out of that mistranslation, he got a doctrine that um, has really taken hold since the Reformation of original sin. But look at context. Look, look at the creation account. It is good. It's not about original sin, but original blessing. Now, food was to become a major issue for the young church. How were Jewish and Gentile Christians to do life together? You know, they, we come from different cultures. Just today, oh, one of the pastors that, that I mentor told me about uh, a new person that, uh, that I'd met a few weeks ago when I was at his church who, who's now bringing other people. But tonight, th- this, this young man came from India, and he'd been in Canada for a couple of years, and tonight... He was going to taste his first pizza. He'd never even had North American food. Uh, I just, I, I was struck by that when I saw this, that the early church was dealing with this incredible influx of people, but they were both Jews who'd always been taught to stay away for the reasons we just looked at, and Gentiles who had all kinds of different uh food traditions. And, you know, if you've ever been to an international meal, you you see the incredible variety. So this was a major issue for the young church. How were Jews and Gentiles who were Christians, how were they supposed to do life together? Now, I, I think in this whole episode, remember, I believe very much that Matthew wrote this and addressed it to the church in Antioch, a generation after the events. But I think there's many messages for the church that Matthew had, and one of them is that the Jewish believers had to resist the great tendency to judge or to be uncomfortable with or or to see as second class those who came from different traditions. And we need to do the very same thing. Read, read Galatians 3. This whole new living organism called the body of Christ, there isn't Jews and Gentiles. He says there's not even male or female, young or old. We 
are a whole new living organism. And there is no room for us in our words or even in our thoughts to, to be uncomfortable or to judge those who come from dr- different traditions. Matthew 12, 34, on this whole issue of what does defile us. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This takes us back to what we saw many weeks ago in Matthew 7. You will know them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. What comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's in the heart. And it's what comes out that defiles us and others, not what we eat. So Jesus has taken the issue raised about eating with clean hands, and he's now extended it. He's deepened it to the real issue of the inner life. Let's go to the next episode in this chapter. I call it a crossroads healing. Verses 21 to 28. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered her, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was instantly healed. I love this episode. Look at how Matthew orders things. He, he confronts us with the stark contrast, the, the religious leader's unbelief and criticism and bondage versus a Gentile woman's faith. <sighs> As we've just seen, vicious thoughts and words defile the heart. But in contrast, we see faith that cleanses the heart. Verse 21, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon represent, in fact, they were almost code words for the land of the Gentiles, the land of the pagans. Jesus knew that it was not yet time for the the climactic confrontation with the Jewish leaders. There was confrontation, but he knew there was a great final confrontation coming, and it wasn't time. So once again, as we've seen before, he withdrew. But this time, he withdrew outside of Galilee, outside of the Jewish territory. Verse 22, just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is tormented by a demon. A few things I want you to notice here. It's the only place in all of the New Testament that someone is referred to as a Canaanite. This is very intentional on Matthew's part. In the genealogy, remember I said the genealogy is gospel, chapter 1. Both Tamar 
and Rahab. His ancestors were Canaanites. So Canaanite wasn't in contemporary use in first century Palestine. A Canaanite was, a, was traditional vocabulary for their ancient and most persistent enemies of Israel in, in times past. That the Canaanite would receive the compassionate ministry of the Messiah would be a powerful symbol to the early church of the universality of the gospel. It's interesting to me that the woman called out to Jesus with a Jewish messianic address. Son of David. It's, it's like blind, blind Bartimaeus. Again, Matthew is clearly using irony. He's contrasting her faith, a Gentile, and the recognition of who Jesus really is with the religious leader's complete blindness. Verse 23 to 25, but he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. You know, this woman, as we see, like the, like the immoral woman in, in, in Luke 7, uh, as we see in John 12, there was a desperation. She wouldn't let go. And in this interaction, we could look and say, well, it was hopeless. Why was she perse- persevering? But I think through it all, in her desperation, she, she saw three points of hope. First of all, Jesus has come into my country. He's left uh, Galilee. He's left the Jewish territory and come to mine. And secondly, when I cried for help, he didn't say, no way. He was just silent. And, and when he spoke, he didn't send me away, as his disciples had asked him to do. I think we have a wonderful example of faith. Faith believes even when reason is not so sure. We come to a really important point of interpretation. Something of which there has been hundreds, I'm sure thousands of pages written, trying to explain why Jesus would refer to her and all Gentiles as a dog, uh, why he was silent, what, what was going on. So, why was he silent? Well, the, the more traditional view, <clears throat> I would say the more, the more common view, is that Jesus is silent in order to draw out of the woman a response of faith. Um, we see his response uh, as one filled with irony, even humor. I don't know how many commentators say he said this with a raised eyebrow or tongue-in-cheek. I want you to notice that, that when he responded, it was to the disciples, not the woman. But she would have heard his words. And so she responds with even greater faith and desperation. And it says that she knelt down. Other translations say she worshipped. That's because the Greek word proskuneo can mean either to kneel down or to worship. And he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now these words seem harsh. 
the opposite of the compassionate Jesus. But something else is happening here. Again, this is all in the traditional view. Jesus continues to draw the woman's faith out, much like teachers will will often say something contrary to what they really mean or believe in order to get the student to come to their own clear conclusion. So what we see going back here, it's it's like a a debate. And, And so right after he says it's not right to take the children's bread, throw it to the dogs, she doesn't miss a beat. She doesn't get hurt or wounded. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Epiphanius, one of the early church fathers, said this. In other words, speaking of of what she meant, in other words, you came to the Jews and manifested yourself to them. What they rejected, give to us who are asking for it. Hosea, wonderful, one of the, the short prophetic books, the, uh, the minor prophets. Hosea 1.10 says this, In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, You are children of the living God. So with these words, she, as it were, she wins the debate. But again, in the traditional view, Jesus really was simply coaching her along to this point. And he said, uh, then woman, uh, Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. I want to present to you uh, another interpretation. Jesus is confronted with the collision of two very important truths. He always responds to faith. He is always compassionate. But he has told the disciples plainly that his mission, and therefore theirs, is only to the lost sheep of Israel. He made that really clear when he sent them out in chapter 10. But now he's confronted with that and this reality, this woman. And it says, and he's silent. Here's another possibility, folks. Perhaps he was silent, much like when he was writing in the dirt with the woman caught in adultery in in John 8. He is silent simply because he's waiting to hear from the Father what he wants in this situation. And yeah, his silence is full of mystery. We can't with certainty know what's going on inside him. But it opens up a bigger issue, the possibility that there's a fork in the road being presented to him. And he's saying, Lord, Papa, what do you want me to do? And so it opens up that bigger issue of of hypostasis, that that word uh, reflecting the incarnation, that he's fully God and fully man. Remember, we've talked about the kenosis of Philippians 2, 5-11, that he emptied himself. At the incarnation, he emptied himself. When he emptied himself, did he lay aside his omniscience? Did he lay aside some of his omniscience? Clearly, we see in the Gospels examples of Jesus asking for information. What do you want? Or what can you see now? 
You know, John tells us in a few places that Jesus only did and said the things he saw the Father doing and saying. In his humanity, could it be at this point, when confronted by the Canaanite woman, that that he was learning to hear more and more? Hebrews tells us he 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 learned obedience. Does when Jesus says it's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, does this reveal the struggle of Jesus? to find the will of his Father. Now, when I say that, some of us get uncomfortable. But don't forget the Garden of Gethsemane. It is not unworthy of Jesus to struggle in order to know the Father's will. And that's exactly what happened in the Garden. And like the Garden, Jesus learns the Father's will. In the Garden, he learned it for his death. But here... Maybe he's learning the Father's will for his life, for his ministry, for his mission. And so in this, he opens himself up to the whole world as his mission field. Look at the contrast. In uh, When he sends out the the 12 in in chapter 10, he, he sends them with these instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in Acts 1, when he speaks his final words before he ascends, he says to these same disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I believe this is a crossroads right here. He comes to a point, I think, He's going, oh, Papa, this is what you're doing now. But who can know for sure? And then he says to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. But actually the word he used, it it can mean largeness or greatness. But it, it also means your faith is splendid. One translation says it's terrific. Jesus is delighting in her faith. Isn't that wonderful? He is delighting in it. There's nothing begrudging about about bringing the healing to her. The children's bread. Folks, faith is the currency of the kingdom. Where I live here in America, the currency is in my dollar bills. But in the kingdom, faith is the currency. Origin. One of the early church fathers, he points out that this whole episode illustrates what Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. My, my, what a contrast between these two episodes. Now, there's a bit of a bridge here. It's a short one. Verses 29 to 31, it's about healing in the gospel. Jesus departed from there. He skirted, I like that word, he skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. 
So the multitude marveled when they uh, saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Note that phrase. Now, this passage seems to be merely a repeat uh, of the end of chapter 14 when Jesus, when Matthew said, when they'd crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret after the people of that place recognized them. They sent word through the region who brought back all who were sick and that they might even touch the fringe of his cloak. Gennesaret, by the way, was an area in Galilee on the west side of uh, the Sea of Galilee. But here in chapter 15, Jesus has gone from the region of Tyre and skirted. He's gone north of Galilee, north of Capernaum, etc. And he's gone over, um, <coughs> pardon me, uh, from the region of Tyre to the Gentile area north and east of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it says that he climbed the hills. Well, the hills he climbed are part of the the Golan Heights, which is an area we still refer to in that same way. So from verse 21, the Canaanite woman, to the end of this chapter, it all takes place in a Gentile region. It's interesting to me that when the healing's happening, it says, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is never said of the Galileans throughout Matthew's account. I think he's distinguishing this crowd from the earlier one. And and this little transitional passage sets the stage for the feeding of the 4,000. Now, let me just read that. 32 to 39, Jesus called his disciples to himself, said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. His disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a a great multitude. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were about 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent them away, uh, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Doesn't this sound familiar? If you look at the 5,000 and the 4,000, the parables are remarkable. Uh, the, The parallels are remarkable. So why does Matthew, who's so selective in what he includes in his gospel narrative, why does it record a miracle that seems to be a virtual repeat of the feeding of the 5,000. It doesn't reveal anything new about Jesus or about his ministry. Well, here's the key. And truthfully, this is a key I only saw as I was studying this passage. For 45 years, I have kind of read the 4,000, but a lot quicker because I just finished reading the 5,000 and it's the same thing. Well, we're going to point out a few important differences. Matthew is intentionally drawing a parallel between Jesus' ministry to the Jews and the Gentiles. What took place with the Canaanite woman was a critical crossroads for Jesus' ministry. And therefore, for the disciples, after the resurrection, when the church is established. 
Look at the lead up to this. Up to this point in this chapter, we've had debate about purity. And all religious Jews knew that contact with the Gentiles made them impure. Then we have the Gentile woman, which focuses on the right of the Gentiles to the children's bread. See, bread is a theme through this chapter. If you look carefully, eating what goes in, and then the children's bread, and now he breaks the bread and feeds 4,000. Matthew is deliberately showing us, and his church, the early church, the literal giving of this bread, the children's bread, to the Gentiles, so that it cannot be missed that the gospel is for everyone. In our last session, we talked about the Eucharistic significance of Jesus providing the bread. If I'm not going to review all that. If you want to, you can look at episode 29. But there's great significance. John 6 points this out, etc. This episode is here, this feeding of the 4,000, to show that all are invited to the Messianic banquet, the, the Lamb's Supper. It's, it, it's the same for the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper, we, we read in, in 1 Corinthians 11, we see at the end of the Synoptic Gospels. That Lord's Supper is open to everyone because it anticipates the, the final supper. Uh, Revelation 19, 17, come gather for the great supper of God. Thirdly, by having the disciples distribute the food, teaching the church, he's teaching the church that it is to meet not only spiritual needs, but physical needs. The church is to feed the hungry. By the way, just as an aside, I often wondered, well, you know, there were 12 baskets with the 5,000 and there were seven baskets with the 4,000 guess it wasn't as big a miracle. Well, first of all, I don't think you couldn't quantify it. But secondly, two very different words in the Greek. The the baskets, the 12 baskets, were a particular Jewish type of basket that was a standard size. It was smaller. The seven baskets, when he's ministering in the, the Gentile world, that's a different word, and their baskets were considerably larger. So that's just a little aside in case you've always wondered why there were fewer the second time. And it's also important to me that, that Matthew differentiates, again, between the Jewish and the Gentile miracle of the feeding. So in both episodes, the 5,000 and the 4,000, he has the disciples feed them. In both episodes, he tells the disciples to give the crowd from what they have. This challenges you and I, and it challenges the church in our world. What do we have? However small, however it seems inadequate, what can we offer to the Lord for the service of the world? Because when we feed the hungry, we are feeding Jesus. So just to conclude... Matthew has structured his narrative from Jesus' ministry to the Jews on to the Gentiles to make a clear, overarching point. (coughs) 
excuse me, the gospel is always inclusive. You've heard me say that many times. It is always inclusive. But more than that, he's showing us the gospel is not dualistic. And what do I mean by that? Dualism says there's right and wrong. There's in and out. There's black and white. There's no us and them. There's no in or out in the gospel. To be like Jesus, to follow the Jesus way, we must learn to both live and think inclusively, non-dualistically, to get rid of the us and them that's in our hearts. The beauty of the gospel is found in Jesus' own words. Think of this now as you think of feeding those 4,000, been hungry for three days. Notice with the Jews, the disciples came after one day. These Jewish brethren are hungry. They need to be fed. But with the Gentiles, they let them go for three days. Did you ever notice that point? Again, it's dualism. But what we learn is to, to live and think inclusively. And the beauty of the gospel is found in Jesus' own words. Come unto me, all who are weary. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. The church that will follow Jesus will learn to give the children's bread away indiscriminately again and again, and then watch it multiply. God bless you. In just a moment, Tim will be meeting with me and we'll just discuss some of these issues. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, I, I just told you in the transition there, that was one of my favorites, actually. I, I love that one. Uh, this question of why Matthew would tell the same story two times, and even just the way you broke down that uh, in the last moment there, how you talked about how there's bread all the way through this theme, uh, through this chapter. Yep. Just, wow, I hadn't even seen that. So um, I'm looking forward to coming back to that chapter He was again. a pretty clever he, writer. He knew what he was doing, that guy. I tell you, his stuff yeah. stuck, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I hope he's getting royalties on this. Um, just before we get started uh, with some questions, which I do have some questions for you, but I wanted to just mention to people, if you don't have this book right here, this is The First Church Restored, uh, and if you don't have this book... Uh, you should get it. You can get it at our website. Uh, and apologies, I don't know. I, you know what? I will make up a shortcut right now in case we don't have it, uh, which is uh, impactnations.com slash firstchurch. Uh, if you head to that, uh, you can get a copy of this book. I really strongly recommend it. The reason it's on my mind is because you you and I have both been in contact with Adam today. He's a uh, pastor of a church up in Canada. We just did uh, a conference up there a couple weeks ago uh, where we were teaching some of the material from this book. And mm -hmm. it sounds like they're pretty excited about uh, about moving forward with that, yeah. They are. They're, they're opening up a first church on Friday at the uh, community college, and then they're opening up three others in their city uh, next week. And he's really excited, and uh, we're excited just to watch this happen. It's like, 
You know, it's like this is catching on now in a lot of places. Yeah. I think we've mentioned we discovered the Philippines. The Philippines. <laughs> our friend Pastor Ronalyn is carrying this around everywhere she goes. Uh, she told me the other day, she said, I, I can't stop telling people about this, and we're just doing it everywhere we go. And they're, they're planting churches like crazy. Uh, you know, they start with... Um, meeting people's physical needs, they're giving food to the desperately poor, and then uh, they're they're saying that was a gift from Jesus, and He's got another gift for you, and uh, they leave churches behind. Yeah, so yeah, they do. It's happening in Australia. It's just happening, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, if if I hadn't written it, I'd be really bolder about saying you've got to read this book. Uh, there's practical, practical stuff. Yeah, you got to read this book, but you got to do this book too. Yeah. You know, don't just read it. Yeah. Uh, go go practice some of the things in here. And the, one of the things I love about this book actually uh, is each each chapter you finish up with some really practical stuff of like, go, go take these steps. Like, here are some ideas from this chapter that you can go implement this week. Yep. Yeah, I love that. So uh, head to the website, get your copy. You can get a digital copy uh, if you want it. If you just need it right now, uh, it'll be delivered to your email immediately, and you can start reading on your on your digital device. Um, all right, a couple of quick questions for you that I unfortunately probably can't be quick questions, but I'll just get your your thoughts on it a little bit. Um, earlier in today's teaching, you were talking about the um, the self satisfaction with the externals of religion, is is the phrase you used. Um, we in the Protestant Church have often used the what is probably a very tired and lame phrase now, but you know, well, it's not about religion; it's about relationship. Uh, and I think that the foundation of that statement is true. But I wonder, have we, uh, in the more kind of charismatic movement or evangelical movement, where things don't appear to be as liturgical in our in our meetings and stuff, have we become self satisfied in our own religious practices and not even notice it? Like, have we started slipping into um, just practicing religion rather than being followers of the way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the signs it, of that? I think one of the signs is um, uh, rigidness. Mm-hmm. This is right, that's wrong. Interesting. I think that it's, uh, and you know, I love liturgy, but I love liturgy that it has room for the Holy Spirit. And so when it's, this is exactly what's in. The, the big thing about religion is you and I have said a hundred times, uh, no matter how nice it looks, it's exclusive. Yeah. So if at all it's dualistic. But the self-satisfaction is if we create rules and we say this is righteousness, this yeah. is holiness, and I can keep the rules at least most of the time when folks are looking, um, <laughs> <laughs> then I think, see, I'm doing well. Or yeah. we as a church are doing well. I yeah. you know, I was once long ago part of a church that was so built on externals, and the message was, if you go anywhere else, it's not as righteous as here. <laughs> wow. It wasn't said exactly, but it was said, you know, well, you're missing God's best. Mm, wow. Okay. Um, that was 40 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this question I hesitate to ask because I know it's a big one, but you you really piqued my curiosity with this, uh, the diving back into hypostasis, fully God, fully man, yeah. uh, this possibility that perhaps he's um, 
waiting to hear from the father on is this the moment is this the crossroads whereby now we're we're moving into uh the gentiles we're we're really going to bring the kingdom to the gentiles at this moment and begin that is this the moment or what if yeah he goes wow father i didn't see that coming Mm. is that possible so you're kind of melting my brain uh (laughs) because i i think we I don't know. Maybe we just don't spend enough time in the church thinking about this fully man, fully God thing. Uh, I think fully God we we can grasp very quickly. Yep. But the self-emptying, how much – it's just such a contrast, right? It is such a paradox. If he's fully emptied, how is he still fully God? Yeah. Um, so how do you imagine this? I mean, because cool. there are times that he knows stuff. Like, for instance, yep. right, the woman at the well, hey, Absolutely. yeah, and this, the, the guy you're with right now isn't even your husband. Like, he, as a human, he hey, has Nathaniel. no business knowing that. Yeah. I, I saw, saw you, you talking to Phil under yeah. the tree. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I don't know, but <laughs> I don't because I could tell you I've got it figured out. I don't think anybody has it yeah. figured out, but I, I, I suspect that he couldn't be fully man if he didn't set aside voluntarily mm-hmm. some degree of his omniscience, which is the word meaning all knowing. Yeah. Um, it's only a suspicion. These are mysteries. This is why I want to get back into teaching on the mystery of Christ, yeah. the mysteries that are in the gospel. But it is my feeling that he wasn't messing with her. He wasn't just pulling her along, although that is the majority view. And if that turns out to be right, I'll say that's fine. Yeah. But I I think I think there was a he came to a fork in the road and he knew he had to take it. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. Uh, On the more traditional view, is there something to be learned there in terms of being persistent and just basically almost, um, maybe demanding is too strong a word, Mm. but maybe not. Like demanding, like, God, I I need you to intervene. I need you to. (laughs) Matthew 7, ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Um, uh, Luke 11, Luke 18, persistent prayer, absolutely. Do we give something. up too easily in prayer? Uh, I think we do. Yeah. I think I do. Yeah. You know, in terms of my petition prayer, Yeah. you know, uh, a big part of my prayer life is is more contemplative. But mm-hmm. when, it, when I'm petitioning, I think we tend to. Yeah. But she didn't. Isn't that great that she saw those three positives yeah. when you can't even <laughs> see positives, but she did. Indeed. It was a bit rude of a thing to say, was it not? Like that phrase, like, you know, well, the, 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 like, the, 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 don't give the children's bread to the dogs. dogs yeah. yeah, it was. It and a lot, of, a lot of uh, commentators, both ancient and modern, uh, that's where they usually say he was kidding. He was trying to pull her along. Another one is the word they used is little dog. And some say, well, that was a household pet. One of the church fathers said he was inviting her into the the house of believers. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I went, that's what I did. I went, well, okay. Okay. (laughs) Because you know what? We try to say that there's There's, truths everywhere. Absolutely. Uh, But sure, that's a little bit of a shock, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting. Didn't shock her though. She just no, kept she going. just kept going. She did. It didn't throw her off. And at if all. it was a debate, she won. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so interesting because the Pharisees never win, 
you know, yeah. when, when the Pharisees go in to debate Jesus, they can't, they can't win. Every time they walk away with their tail between their legs, if you'll pardon the metaphor. And, <laughs> and isn't it wonderful, the contrast that Matthew gives yeah. us between the religious people? And I love that he says, oh, woman, your faith is splendid. Hmm. He delights yeah. in her faith. Yeah. And pretty clearly, he wasn't just delighting in the religious Yeah, guys. he's not too delighted with them and, at all. Uh, yeah. So I think that's interesting. I I it just I just saw the last couple of days that the disciples in the Jewish version the five thousand mm-hmm. the end of one day whoa these guys are getting hungry yeah but, that was quite the, the revelation the Gentiles yeah. hey wait three, three flipping days yeah yeah you know hmm. and and um, I don't know if that's another little indication of the ethnocentricity and the dualistic yeah. thinking I don't know I, I but but it sure changed the reading of that whole episode yep. when I thought, ah, oh, this is what he's doing. It's contrasting. He's progressing. Now the gospel is going outside yeah. of uh, of Israel, yeah. outside of Galilee. Mm. Very good. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, you have been listening to the Impact Nations podcast. We're here every Thursday at 3 p.m. Uh, on Facebook, on YouTube. Uh, and also, if you head to impactnations.com slash podcast, you can subscribe, uh, get the audio delivered right to your device and listen to that every week. Uh, you know what? Just head to impactnations.com. There's all sorts of great stuff happening there all the time. Uh, and uh, browse. Check out some of the projects we're doing around the world. Awesome stuff. Do check out our store. Uh, and and you'll find uh, the First Church Restored. I almost said FCR because that's what I call it internally. Uh, but First Church Restored, you can pick that up. Uh, either we can ship it to you or you can get it delivered uh, digitally directly to your device. Um, have a great week. We'll see you again next week with Matthew chapter 16, I suspect. I think so. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>